0: Our series on Wednesday night, I've called Peaks, exploring the mountaintops of Scripture. And the idea is we're going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the mega themes of the Scripture, the main events, the main characters, the peaks of Scripture. And tonight, we come to a very important event in the history of Israel. Um, a transitionary moment for the nation. Tonight, we'll watch as the nation of Israel transitions from that period of the judges to the period of the monarchy, and it's a it's a pretty big deal in the history of Israel. So, here in First Samuel chapter eight, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless this time now in your Word. Lord, we want to tell you tonight how much we appreciate you. You are such an awesome Lord. You're such a great leader. You're so gracious. You're so kind with your people. You're so patient with us. You're so generous towards us. You truly are the good shepherd. And we love you. And we want to be more like you. Continue to lead our lives. And I pray that all of us here tonight would be those who would allow you to take the lead rather than trying to do things on our own strength. Bless this time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Samuel was an awesome, awesome man of God. He was an incredible prophet of the Lord. He was a wonderful leader of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel enjoyed many years of prosperity under Samuel's leadership. But look what happens at the end of his life. Look what we read in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. That is such a disappointing passage. To me, Samuel is absolutely one of my heroes in the scriptures. Just this wonderful, wonderful man of God. But here at the end of his life, he makes some bad choices. And there are two details here that are disappointing to me. Number one, Samuel appointed his own sons, named Joel and Abijah, to be judges. He appointed his own two sons... To succeed him as a judge. And that was odd. That's not how things worked in the time of the judges. In the period of the judges, God would raise up a leader, a judge, to handle a crisis for the nation for a given period of years, and then later on raise up another judge from another family or another tribe. The judgeship, if you will, was not meant to carry down the family line. There was not supposed to be any dynasty of judges. And so Samuel here is sort of going against the program. And he's appointed his two sons to be judges. Now, they're judges way down south in Beersheba. That's the furthest southern part of the nation of Israel. And they don't have very much influence. But still, he's done that. And then secondly, Samuel's two sons are not good guys. It says that they did not walk in the ways of their dad. They did not walk in the ways of the Lord. It says that they used their positions for personal enrichment. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So it, it, it's a bummer to me. He's a great man of God, but he was unable to pass his faith, his integrity, down to his sons. And And actually, you see that quite often in the scripture. It's quite a challenge. Now, it's very possible that one of two things happened. It may be That Samuel did not give his sons as much attention as they needed. Perhaps he wasn't there for them. Remember, he was very busy in the ministry. He was the prophet for the whole nation. We're told in the scripture that he would take circuit trips all around the nation. Perhaps he was out of town a lot. And perhaps he didn't give enough time and attention to his own family. And I want you to know that is a big-time danger for anyone in the ministry. If you are a part of ministry or you aspire to be a part of ministry, be warned of that. I know of many ministers who are running all over town fixing everyone else's marriage while their own marriage falls apart. I know of ministers who go all around town fixing parenting issues while their own children are falling apart. You minister to your family. And by the way, that would apply to all of us no matter what we're doing, no matter what our career is. We can get so caught up in what we do and what maybe we want to provide for our children That we forget to actually spend time with them and train them up and raise them up in the ways of the Lord. So that may have been the case. Or perhaps these children grew up and just rebelled. You know, children do become adults eventually, right? Please tell me that's true. (laughs) And when they become adults, they're responsible. For their own choices and I have a hard time believing that Samuel didn't teach them anything about the Lord perhaps they just grew up and they decided to go in their own way their way down in Beersheba they're not under their dad's direct supervision and they make these choices either way it's a total bummer And this situation at the end of Samuel's life created a whole lot of insecurity for the entire nation. All of the Israelites were stressed about it. They have anxiety. They're thinking, oh man, this great leader, he's old, he's getting ready to die, and his two sons are greatly lacking. And so all of the elders of all of the twelve tribes of Israel, they got together and they had a meeting. And they came to Samuel with a proposition. Look what it says in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, look, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Man, that's real blunt, don't you think? You're an old guy and you have creeps for sons. (laughs) Tell me what you really think, right? Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, we want a king. And we want a king right now. Now please understand that this is a radical proposition. This is a big change for the direction of Israel. They're saying, we want a monarchy. We want a new form of government. We want a human king on the throne. We want a strong central government. <laughs> we want stability. We want structure. We want order. We want predictability. We want continuity. We don't want to know who's going to be leading when. And and it's kind of ironic that they want a monarchy. Because if they were in a monarchy at that moment, they'd have Samuel. Samuel would be king. And, and they'd have to take one of his two creepy sons, right? Because the monarchy goes down the line. So it's sort of ironic that they wanted it at this point. But they said, we want a king. Now, this request was not evil in and of itself. This request was not an evil request per se at face value. It wasn't wrong with what they were requesting. But they were wrong in two other ways. They were wrong in the way they were requesting. This is a demand, isn't it? We want a king. And we want a king right now. And they're saying, Samuel, give us this king right now. And they recognize Samuel's the spiritual leader of the nation. Samuel's going to go to the Lord with the request. So really, this is, this is a demand of God. God, we want a king. We want a monarchy right now. And there's no doubt that when they were meeting as the elders of the tribes, they probably were not even talking to God about it. We don't have any evidence that God was ever a part of their decision-making process. So, this is a demand from God, and in this sense, they're rejecting God. And they are rejecting the current arrangement that God has made with their nation. See, right now, at this period in history... They're in a covenant relationship with God. A covenant relationship with God. By which God himself is in charge of their nation. This is like a theocracy. The Lord himself is the king. And they're to obey his laws. His commands. His word. And within that System in which they existed at that point, God has provided human leaders. There's a priesthood. There are prophets that God raises up. And there are judges. What they're saying here is we don't like that arrangement. We'd like to opt out of this covenant relationship with you, God. We don't want this anymore. This is a rejection of the Lord. And what's interesting is we know, it's very clear in the scripture, that God had it in the plans to very soon get them into a monarchy. That was part of the plan. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy was written 500 years before what we just read. And in the book of Deuteronomy, you find instructions for the future kings of Israel. So it was always in the plan. God was going to bring them into a monarchy at his time with the man of his choosing. They're saying we want it right now. Give us one now. Wrong time. So it's wrong in the way they made this request. It's also wrong because of the motivation behind the court request. Look at the last phrase of their request, and that tells a lot. They say, Now make us a king to judge us like what? Like all the nations. We want to be like the nations. Samuel, we look around, all these nations, all they all have kings. They have strong central government, strong militaries as a result. We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. In other words, we want to be like the world. Now, that's a big problem. Because the nation of Israel was called to be holy. They were called to be separate from the other nations. Distinct from the other nations. Leviticus 20, part of their law says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The strength of the nation of Israel was them being unlike all the other nations. And yet we want to be like the other nations. And that's what they're motivated by. It's almost like a political form of idolatry. We want this other government. We want the worldly government. We're not satisfied with the government you want for us, God. We want the world's version. Well, this request made Samuel sick. It says in verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now I am certain that Samuel felt a little bit of personal resentment here. I mean, they're saying we want a king now. Move over, old man. We want a new leader, a new form of government right now. This is a rejection of Samuel. And it's very strong here. It says it it displeased them in the Hebrew, literally, this request was evil. In the eyes of Samuel. And Samuel could have gotten very upset. He could have blown his top. Instead he prayed. By the way, I highly recommend that. When you feel like you're going to blow your top. Leave the situation. Go out and pray. Get some wisdom. Get some clarity before you go off. So Samuel goes to the Lord in prayer and he tells the Lord about the request. And of course, the Lord already knows about the request, right? Well, look how the Lord responds. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, surprisingly, heed the voice of the people. In all that they say to you, do it. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign Over them. Now, I love how good God is. God is such a wonderful boss to work for. He's such a wonderful. Look at his grace and compassion towards Samuel. Samuel, listen. Relax. You're not a failure. You're doing fine. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I love how God does that comes along and he comforts people. And he says to Samuel, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let them have what they want. If this is what they want, if they want a king right now, all right, we'll let them have what they want. But let's give them one more chance, Samuel. Uh, warn them of what's going to happen. Let them know exactly what to expect should they get a king right now. So that they can make this choice going in with eyes wide open. Okay, Now remember they have this romanticized view of a monarchy. And this beautiful, awesome, powerful king and all this order, structure and power. Right, That's what they're thinking. Look what Samuel says to them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment. For his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, government's expensive. That's what Samuel's saying, right? Human kings, very expensive. Central government Is expensive. Is our central government expensive? According to the Tax Foundation, the average American has to work until April 17th just to pay federal, state, and local taxes. Think of how hard you work and how much of that money you give to the king, you give to the central government. Human kings are expensive. And most human kings, listen, are takers. Not givers. Most human kings rule in such a way that there's personal enrichment. I mean, look, look at six times. It says, he will take. He will take. He will take your son's. Draft them into his military. He will take your daughters into his service. He will take the best, the best part of your fields. He will take a tenth of your produce. He will take a tenth of your servants. He will take your donkeys. He will take your sheep. He will take your female servants. He will take everything. Samuel says to them, there's going to come a day where you're going to feel like the king's slaves. And just like when you were back in Egypt crying out for deliverance from come somebody free me from slavery. You're going to feel like you're a slave to your own king. And you're going to cry out to God for deliverance. And he ain't going to listen. So you want a king? This is what you can expect. Well, at this point, they have a chance to rethink their position. At this point, they could say, okay, never mind. We'll do something else. But look what they say, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, that shows more about why they want, they want to trust in a human king to go out and fight their battles. Now, the Lord has said and proven, I'll fight your battle. But they want to trust in human strength. No, we want a king. We will have a king. We will be like all the other nations. We will be like the world. Verse 21. And Samuel heard all their words of the people. And he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Okay, you get it. And of course, you know how the story goes. They'll go get a king. A guy by the name of Saul. And Saul will be a train wreck. Saul will do great damage. And we will study his life Next week, you know, Saul's life is is very tragic. He has a beautiful start, beautiful, beautiful start. But because of pride and disobedience, he collapses. But you're going to get your king. We want a king. You're going to get your king. Now, I see some very important lessons from this story that I'd like you to consider. And there's a very important lesson concerning prayer here. It's incredibly important that we approach God in prayer with humility. you understand how important that is? That when we come to God in prayer, we come as humble, humble servants. And we should always come to the Lord in prayer with this submissive viewpoint. This submissive attitude. With this idea, you know Lord, I really want your will... To be done. You remember when Jesus taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? Our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That should be the attitude that we bring to God. Every time we come to him in prayer. God. Your will be done. Humble. Submissive. How did these people come to God in First Samuel chapter 8? Did they come with humility? Absolutely not. They, they didn't come with a request. They came with a demand. God, we want this. And we want this king right now. We want things right now the way we want them. And here's something that's very important. We discover from this city, or from this story, that there are times where God will give you what you want. If you demand something from Him, He'll give you exactly what you demand and the train wreck that comes with it. To teach us lessons. You want a king? great you get a king and you're going to get all the trouble that comes with the king you don't you don't come to god demanding stuff you come to him with humility what if let me ask you what would have happened if these people in humility would have come before god and said lord we'd like a king we'd like to have a king we'd like to move into a system of monarchy But your will be done. You know how God would have answered that? I'll tell you how God would have answered that. You're going to get a king. Just wait. Just wait. See, I believe the king that God wanted to raise up was a young man by the name of David. Not Saul. Later on, when Saul crashes, God will tell Samuel, Go anoint David, for I have provided myself a king. Among himself. See, God had something better. They didn't have to go through the Saul years. Trust God. Don't try to exert your will on God. I have to say, that's one of my biggest problems with um, what is often called by many people as the name it, claim it. Movement. You've heard of the name it, claim it movement? And it's been very popular for many years where Christians are taught, listen, you got promises in the scripture and by faith you need to go claim it. And so Christians are taught, claim that new house by faith. You claim that new car by faith. You claim that healing by faith. I always tell people like that claim a million bucks by faith and then tithe on it to the church. <laughs> claim it by faith. And there's people that teach that, and I want to say, hold on there, big fella. Who's in charge? You know, a person who prays like that is sort of become the commander of God. Who's the master? Who's the servant? You don't demand stuff from God. You come to God respectfully and with humility. With respect. Now, do we pray boldly? Absolutely. Do we pray by faith? Absolutely. Do we pray for healing? Do we pray for blessing? absolutely, but you do it in a respectful way and in a submissive way with the attitude that says, not my will, but your will be done. There's an old adage that I heard many years ago and I've never forgot it and I love it. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Always. Let me say that again. God always gives his best To those who leave the choice with him. Always. Do you believe that? Do you want God's best? Pray boldly. Pray with faith. But you pray with humility. And you pray for God's timing. And remember when you pray, God sees a big picture, not you. We never come to God and say, give me a king. Come with humility. That's a big lesson I saw there. Another very, very important lesson that we see from this, from this chapter. We are never to be like those tribes in Israel insane that we want to be like the other nations. We are, Christian, we are never. To say, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. We are not to be worldly. We are not at all to be like the people in this world. We're not to live that way. We're to be holy. God still says to his church today, his people today, I'm holy. You'll be holy to me because I've separated you from the people's. And and, and I want to talk about that in in two ways. First, let's talk about that personally. You personally, me personally, us personally, as individual Christians, we are not to live worldly lives. We are to be completely different. The command goes to all of us. Nothing could be clearer. In Romans chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I, I... I love the Phillips translation of that, of that verse. It literally says, Do not let the world squeeze you through its mold. Do not let the things of this world press you through the mold. Christian, we are to be so different from the people in this world. Set apart, distinct. 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides for it. We're not even supposed to love the things of this world. Jesus said to us in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, if you're a Christian, you have been plucked out of the world. You are a part of God's holy people and you are to be different. The way we talk is to be different. The way we behave is to be different. Our marriages should look much different. The way we parent should be different. Where we go on Sunday morning should be different. What we do on Friday night should be different. What we watch, what we listen to, what we read should be different. The people we hang with. The activities we're a part of. You understand, we are to be different. If, if, we're, if, if we're the Christian of the mindset, well, I, I want to be like the other nations. I want to be like the world. No. We're to be radically different. Your life should stand out. It shouldn't blend into the world. People shouldn't look at your life and go, hmm, I wonder if that person's a Christian. They should know. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? So, a lot of Christians, in wanting to live holy lives over the years in church history, have moved out of the world and they've gone into monasteries and become monks, and they've left the world. Are we supposed to do that? Should we all quit our jobs tomorrow and find a grassy hillside? I'll bring my guitar. Sing kumbaya. And we just sit there and wait for the Lord? Absolutely not. We're to occupy this world. We're to be salt in this world. We're to be light in this world. We are to be in this world, but not of the world. Different. And I want you to know that you should stand out. And that is your best witness. Do you realize that your best witness as a Christian is the way you live your life on Monday morning? In front of those very people that you work with and that school that you attend. It's not, listen, it's not how you look at church. It's easy to be a Christian at church, ain't it? But out there in the rest of your life, out there in the world and yet not of the world, that is your best chance to be a witness. And you know what? You're going to attract, attract a lot of people to the kingdom by living a holy life. See, you live differently, but you also experience life differently. See, as Christians, we also have a love that's out of this world, a joy that's out of this world. A peace that's out of this world. And a strength that's out of this world. And as you're living that Christian life in front of people, you're going to attract them. There's going to be people who are going to, man, I, now there's going to be people that will hate you. (laughs) You'll repel a lot of people. But you'll also attract a lot of people. That is your best Christian witness. Don't be like the world. Live differently. Different priorities. Different activities. Now, I think we can also apply that corporately as a local church. I think it's very important to do that. Or as a ministry of some sort. You know, there's a great temptation. And I know of a lot of churches that, you know, there's this idea... Well, if we want to attract people in the world, we need to become like the world. And so a lot of churches, you know, what's real important out there in the world? Entertainment, video, all these sorts of things. You know, you don't want to bore people with the Bible. Don't do that. You don't want to do, you need to do things that are fun. You need to, you need to have fluffy sermons. That way you can, you know, you can attract more people from the world. You've got to become more like the world to attract people from the world. Ridiculous. Absolutely not. We are not to be like the other nations. We're to be different. Church is to be different. You know what I think we should do at church? Have church. I mean, I think at church, we should do things like study the Bible, pray, have communion, do baptisms, have fellowship, worship. And that's what we give people. You know, I think I've told you before, but it's such a a great illustration. When I go to state line barbecue, I'm not looking for tacos. (laughs) When you go to state-line barbecue, why are you going? You want barbecue, man. You want to drown in barbecue sauce, right? Okay, now if I go to a Mexican food place, I'm not looking for barbecue. I'm looking for tacos. When I go somewhere, I expect to get what they say they're going to serve. And when people come to church, they should get church served up. And in fact, I think when the church is acting more like the world, it confuses everyone in the world. I mean, listen, you you put a sign, a church on your front door. When you walk into the church, I think even non-believers expect, well, we're going to do churchy stuff. And then if we don't do churchy stuff, then they're really confused. Give them the Bible. Give them the gospel. Give them worship songs give them prayer give them fellowship give them communion give them baptism give them church and people people will be attracted to that again you'll repel some you'll attract others but perish the thought we want to be like the world we want to be like the nations And then there's a third lesson that I see here, and this is important. How weak is human leadership? Isn't human leadership weak and frail? I mean, most kings, most leaders throughout church history, throughout history, are like the king described in this chapter they're takers, they abuse their their authority. And then I am disappointed with Samuel at the end of his life. He makes kind of a poor decision, doesn't he? And yet he's a great leader. Do you recognize that the best leaders in the Bible are still weak? And they make terrible decisions. And they make bad choices. And they do stupid things. Human leadership... Is weak. It's frail. And so understand that. Understand that, Christian. Don't get too attached to human leadership. Be thankful for good human leadership, but don't you dare expect perfect human leadership. And don't get disappointed when a human leader disappoints you. But we as Christians do have a perfect leader. Don't we? I remember Jesus said, follow me, not my disciples. Follow Jesus. He is a perfect leader. And and aren't you just... Doesn't the leadership of Jesus just bless you? Think about how awesome of a leader he is. Is King Jesus a taker? He's a giver. According to him, his mission was, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. A ransom for many. King Jesus, now get this, the most powerful king in all of the universe, Who is worthy of everyone serving him. And giving to him. He comes on the scene and he says I'll give to you. Jesus when he came he served. Jesus gave all didn't he? He gave his life. Jesus still gives doesn't he? He gives people salvation. He gives people brand new starts. He pours his grace out upon people's lives. New Testament says that as Christians, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. He gives, he gives, he gives. He's this God of grace, pours out blessing upon blessing. He's a good king, isn't he? And he's generous. And he's patient. And he's kind. And he's powerful. And he is the only king who truly, truly loves you. Loves you. By the grace of God, if God calls us into positions of leadership, may we be like that. May we be like Jesus. May we be servants to others. May we truly love the people we lead. And care about the people we lead. And reach out and bless the people that we lead. I want to ask you. As we close tonight, is Jesus your leader? Has Jesus become your leader? Is he your shepherd? What's leading you? Who's leading you? Some human leading you around? Some philosophy reading you around? Leading you around? Are you trying to lead yourself around? Taking ownership of your own life? Got it all under your control, right? Let Jesus lead. Let him be your shepherd. He will lead you so skillfully. He will will bring connections into your life at the right time. He will cause your your life to bear fruit. He'll keep you safe. Let Jesus lead you. Before you can let Jesus lead you though, you need to let him save you. King Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. And he rose again that third day and the scripture says, if you'll place your faith in him, you ask him, he'll wash away all your sins. You'll become a child in the family of God and he'll become your leader and he'll lead you. Let's bow our heads. Let's bring this to the Lord. Lord, again, we are so grateful for who you are, what you've done, your skill, your love, Your grace, your generosity, your leading. As your people gather here tonight, I pray that even those of us who have been walking with you for many, many years, that we would never lose sight of who's in charge that we would allow you to lead us in every direction in life. That we would be humble. We'd be servants. Father, I pray that as leaders here tonight in the ministry or leaders in in various parts of the community, that we would be different from the ways of this world. That we would follow your direction. That we would march to the beat of your drumming. That we do things the way you want us to do things. Lord, that we do marriage the way you want marriage done. Parenting the way you want parenting done. Church the way you want church done. Ministry the way you want ministry done. Life the way you want life done. We submit ourselves to you. We confess that we don't have all the answers. We're not smart. We need your leading. So, Lord, give us that. And then I'd like to pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, who has never allowed you to be Savior. Maybe that's you tonight. I don't know why you're here tonight, how you got here tonight. But it's no accident that you're here. And you will never have a better leader than Jesus Christ. You will never have a better shepherd than Jesus And he did die for you. He paid the price for your sins and he rose again that third day. And he's here to save you tonight. He'll save you right now. He'll put his spirit in you and then he'll begin to lead you. But you have to ask him. You You have to reach out to him. And so I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now. If that's you, you you cry out to Jesus. Cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, lead me. Take ownership of my life. Be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Wash away all my sins. Take over my life. Repair all the damage I've done. Give me a brand new start right here, right now, tonight. I submit myself to you. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, then I don't want you to run out of here right away. You need to tell someone. And we're going to have leaders up here in the front. You just come forward and say, I prayed that prayer. Because we'd like to talk with you about that decision you've made. We'd like to help you um, in your relationship with Christ. And in in the matters of growing in your relationship with Christ. So be sure you come, come forward before you leave. And uh, again, if anybody needs prayer for anything, as always, we're going to be up here and available. Let's all stand, and we'll close with a. Five-